and welcome to Say Hi to the Future, a podcast aimed at highlighting the human side of ingenuity, clever, inventive, and original thinking. My name is Ken Tenser, CEO of SpiderWorks, a leading business consultancy for mid-market organizations and entrepreneurs globally. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. With me today is Eric Ingram, CEO and founder of Scout, a U.S.-based company developing orbital products and services to enable a new era of space safety and transparency. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy the show. Eric Ingram, welcome to Say Hi to the Future. Hey, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So, Eric, I was reading a piece you wrote about a week ago. So for, for, for the listeners, for the viewers, you've got an unbelievable background as an aerospace engineer. I was reading through it. Undergrad research and uh, thesis research in experimental atomic physics, then your master's optically transparent dual frequency patch antenna for use in microsatellites. Not everyday stuff. Work for the FAA. Office of Commercial Space Transportation and, and others. Now, with all of this unbelievable background in your area, what you wrote about, though, was a transition to becoming an entrepreneur. Now, I, I have been an entrepreneur for 30 of my 37 years in different businesses. It is not an experience that you can teach. And I know people try to teach it. I don't think you can teach it. So can you share a little bit about that? Because I think it's just a wonderful lesson for everyone. Yeah, uh, I've, for one, never been to business school. I was a business major in undergrad for one semester. So I've got that. Um, I, my first job out of college was working at an asteroid mining startup called Deep Space Industries. I was like an entry-level engineer doing like grunt-level uh, systems development for CubeSat missions. Like I realized I was just a terrible engineer, right? Like I, my attention to detail isn't great. My math skills, probably not up to par. And um, I'm not a big fan of just working on like one small thing. I, I am a generalist and I like um, having my hands involved in as many different things as possible. After that, I then went to more non-directly technical positions. So I was in the nonprofit sector as you know a leader for uh, some organizations for a few years. And that's kind of where I developed a lot of my um, management skills, if you want to call them skills, uh, some of my experience there. And then jumped back to the space industry working at the FAA. Uh, and while my title was aerospace engineer, a lot of what I was doing was like regulatory stuff. I was um, evaluating launch companies' ability to meet safety and regulatory requirements for their launches and their ability to protect the public. Um, while there's technical know-how that you need for that, it, it was you know me looking at dozens of different systems and dozens of different um, applications of them. And, um, you know, that was a broad reaching experience that gave me basically a top-down look at an entire industry. That and combined with having an entrepreneurial mindset, I've done a ton of things throughout my life that could be thought of as businesses, but, you know, uh, if the IRS is listening, they weren't. And so, um, don't worry, we're way past statute of limitations and I made, you know, tens of dollars off of them. So, we're, we're probably fine. But I, when I started my company, I had no real business development experience. I had, it was my, the first company I started and, you know, we're four years into this and every day is a new learning experience. And I'm now an expert in dozens of different things that I never wanted to be an expert in. 
Um, you know, I, I could probably pass the bar in a few states at this point. It is, it's not something you can train, right? It's, I think it's probably easier for an engineer to get into business than probably a business person to get into engineering. Not that both would be well suited for those things, right. but um, in terms of learning the skill sets needed, um, there's so many intangible and um, abstract skill sets and experiences you need for entrepreneurship that it's really difficult to capture that with any sort of class or degree or, or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Well, and one of the other things you said was, you know, and, and, and obviously you did the entrepreneurial lifestyle of, of debt and credit cards and all those things. And you did it because you said you knew it would be worth it. And I think that's critical because as entrepreneurs, people think of the word audacity, they think of it as a negative. And I, I think of it as a, as a positive, as a real driver, because the truth is, if you didn't believe that this was worth it, you wouldn't be getting up in the morning to do it. And, and frankly, no one else is going to do it for you. And unfortunately, um, and I don't mean it as negatively as it might sound, but we all have those voices around us going, this is crazy. This is stupid. What are you thinking? And you just need to have that self-belief and causal belief that, no, this is really important. Yeah. And it's not a simple thing to do. One thing I tell people is to test their theories before they dive in headfirst. So uh, as a background, I, I, I funded the company like the first year and a half of its existence mm-hmm. um, and uh, went full time about eight months into the company's existence. So I was working on it part time. I, I, I had to build up that conviction. I knew it was the right idea, right? I, I knew that we needed space sustainability options. We needed more knowledge of what's going on in orbit. We needed capabilities to make sure spacecraft can operate more safely, can perform more complex um, operations autonomously, and we need to know where they are. Those are all needs. And I know that there are technical capabilities that I could develop or my company could develop to meet those needs. The question is, is the market there? Uh, because you need both sides. You need, well, you need all three sides, right? You need the need, you need the capability, but you also need the money to make it happen. Um, so mm-hmm. you need the customer base because a need without money is, is a donation. Uh, <laughs> and then, you know, a technology without a customer is just a science project. And like, it's, you, you kind of need those three things working in concert. Just my experience in the space industry from, you know, working in space stuff to working the launch side to working the regulatory piece, I saw the need and, and I kind of was going to where I knew we would need to be. I, I knew there would be a few years of development and I knew there'd be a few years until the market really materialized. So it's about getting ahead of the curve and being proactive about where the market will be. It's a gamble, but you know, it's more of an educated gamble than it is kind of just diving in head first. So, so tell us a little bit more specifically about the need. And, and, and what I mean by that is what is Scout? What do you do? And who is, who is paying you to do it? <laughs> Hopefully one day, every listener will be paying me. No, I, uh, just kidding. We're not, we're not direct to consumer, although maybe one day, who knows? So I'll start out with the need. Um, space is really crowded. It's really crowded today. And um, there's articles coming out every week about near misses and you know congestion in space and a new mega constellation that's going to get launched in the future. We will launch more satellites in the next few years in the entirety of humanity's history leading up to it. 
the way we currently track things in space is using ground-based radars and optical telescopes that look up at the sky and track the dots going overhead. Um, and usually that data is delayed and not super accurate. Um, and the way we do complex operations in space is usually with a human in the loop um, because we rely on legacy systems in this industry and we really you know, have that failure is not an option mentality. Um, there's a lot of caution towards new technology adoption. Scout is working on developing capabilities and services to better enable knowledge of what's going on in orbit and better able to uh, and better enabling autonomous operations in spacecraft. So we have uh, systems that we've developed that are vision systems combined with our uh, proprietary software stack that um, when hosted on board customer spacecraft or our own spacecraft, allow them to become aware of their surroundings. We can mm -hmm. uh, enable autonomous relative navigation, either moving towards something or away something, away from something, similar to like a Tesla's autonomous driving capability. And um, we are also developing something akin to traffic cameras for space. So watching what's going on in orbit, who's going where, if there's going to be an accident, what, what are the good guys doing, what are the bad guys doing, and trying to make sense of it all so that we can de-risk the orbital ecosystem. Because... Um, Space is increasingly important to us as a civilization. Um, every day you interact with space, whether you want to or not. And as we go forward, that's going to become more and more of the standard and the norm. Um, if you look at most of our weather data and climate data comes from space, we do Earth observation that provides farming and oil information about markets. You know, we have communications from space. We have Internet from space, given Starlink and others. All of our GPS systems operated in timing systems. So all of our banking systems operate through GPS too to track the timing of, of these exchanges. And all of that will just increase in volume and importance as we go forward. So mm -hmm. we're working on making space sustainable and you know, trying to safeguard that ecosystem so it's a, a level playing field for, for everyone, or at least for most. Definitely a layperson here. Um, Definitely something I never thought about, the notion of space being crowded. So with people launching things, satellites, whatnot, is, is there like an air traffic control to this? Do we know who's launching what when? Or do we really need, as you're saying, you, you compared it to the, um, the Tesla system. Do you just need things up there to know where other things are and how to avoid them? Like, Ne never, never thought about that before today. <laughs> yeah, it, uh, it's a complicated question to answer. Um, I, I'll start from the regulatory piece. There is no direct space traffic management system in place now or regulatory framework that governs it. There's loose rules of the road and there's you know, common operation standards, but nothing that is in rule of law. And that is currently being stood up right now as we speak. Like over the next few years, those regulations are being written. Um, on the flip side of that, we do have knowledge of when launches happen worldwide. Um, if they're a friendly country, we know mm -hmm. what they're launching and what it's doing. And we can track them via those ground-based observers, like I mentioned before. So um, we have base level knowledge of what's going on in orbit. It's yeah. not real time. It's not what you would consider high definition or high fidelity. While it works good today and has worked historically, it just it, it's not going to be capable on its own to sustain what will, you know, what orbit will be like over the coming decades. Why is this important? I mean, you said before, whether we know it or not, we 
um, space is part of our day-to-day lives. How? Why? And and why as an average individual should I know this? Or, or am I imp- impacted by it, I guess, is a better way of asking. Gotcha. And um, as I previously mentioned before, um, weather information mostly comes from space these days through NOAA satellites. Mm-hmm. Your GPS helps you navigate, but also the timing system of those is connected to basically every internet-related system. So every financial transaction uh, is timed and all of that. And that is usually coordinated via space-based platforms. Space-based internet is becoming more feasible and, and knowledge uh, more regular. Um, if you look at Starlink, if you look at companies like OneWeb and Amazon is standing up their Kuiper program, it will be you know one of the default means of internet access over the next few years. Um, especially in remote areas or areas that are impacted by devastating um, events like in Turkey uh, recently. Ground infrastructure is finite and is geographically isolated. Space-based capabilities can be applied globally. So I think you will see more services and capabilities migrate to space in the future. Um, and that's not even getting into human space flight and space stations and all of that, which right. are coming. But I think that the everyday person won't have tangible access to that for some time. But, you know, that stuff is on the horizon, too, and is being developed. But in terms of, you know, your daily interactions, I'm just going to make up a number here. But I bet at least a dozen times a day you're interacting with something that is either directly communicating from space or came from space. So you've got a partner in this, Sergio. Does he come from the same type of background as you, or is there a very different take on his introduction to Scout? So I met Sergio actually while we were at Deep Space Industries. We were both in the same engineering team. Our paths diverged when you know I found out I was a terrible engineer. He found out he was a great engineer, and so um, you know we reconnected with Scout, you know, in 2019 to bring this to life. His technical know-how combined with my conceptual and in- industry-wide knowledge kind of combined to make that, um, you know, a great combination. Um, and the team we're putting together, you know, wakes up every day with its desire to make space more sustainable. And we've really, mm-hmm. you know, made it ingrained in our purpose as individuals and as a company that, you know, we're ultimately doing this for the good of everyone, even if it, you mm-hmm. know, we try to make it alt- as altruistic as possible because we know that this is crucial. Like the infrastructure we're putting in place today is vital towards um, safe operations in space, towards complex operations, and towards sustainability. Mm-hmm. And you know, Sergio is helping all that develop with the technology and capability he and the engineering team are bringing to life. And um, the company as a whole is uh, is moving this all forward. And we're trying to make sure that others in the industry and others outside of the space industry are aware of these needs and what's going on. And um, you know, we can bring everyone along with us. So switching gears a bit, I mean, just a little bit though, but I mean, what is, what is SpaceSight? What are, what are the benefits to that technology? SpaceSight is, is one of our avenues of, of our capabilities we're developing. So um, we have a proprietary computer vision, machine learning and guidance, navigation and control software stack that enables the, the self-awareness in space of these vision systems. Mm-hmm. Um, and along with those capabilities, we developed uh, synthetic data generation, or um, if you're in the defense sphere, they call it digital twin capabilities now, that allow us to make high fidelity understandings of what different systems will see in space. 
um, SpaceSight is dipping your toes in those capabilities and allows customers to essentially say, okay, if we have this set of optical capabilities in space on orbit, what can we see from it? And what data can we get at different distances, different orientations and things like that? So it's, it's a modeling tool for optical visual sensing in space and, uh, you know, dives into or dips your toes into our capabilities, which we kind of bucket in three categories of see, learn and act. So see is taking information via sensors. Learn is taking, you know, taking that data we've collected and processing it to understand what we're seeing and what the data is telling us. And then act is decision-making based on that. So if it's relative navigation, it's how do we move towards or away from something? If it's uh, space domain awareness or space traffic management related, it's tracking an object, what's going on around that object, and if there are any threats or um, issues that are coming about from the interactions of, of that area of space. Yeah, space site is a, is a representation of of some of those capabilities. And just again, for my benefit, what what speeds are we looking at? I mean, this is not 60, well, 60 miles an hour, I should say 40 miles an hour on a highway. I mean, this is incredibly complex. Yeah, things in orbit uh, are moving fast, you know, up to, you know, I think 17,000 miles an hour, something like that. Um, things happen quickly, but, you know, all things are governed by uh, orbital mechanics. So we do at least have physics on our side. And the good news is uh, things like direct head-on collisions with something um, where both are going complete opposite direction and it's, you know, incredibly rapid within a ton of energy release from that collision. Um, th that's super rare. That's, that's very rare unless it's intentional, I will say. You know, the good news is the vast majority of interactions happen at a much slower pace. Um, still quick, still a bit faster than what would happen on the uh, highway. But, you know, um, most things that, you know, unintentionally interact with each other might collide. And in the space world, we call that uh, conjunctions is when there's a chance of collision. Mostly it's things that are in adjacent orbits that are kind of drifting towards each other over time. Right. And so um, those sorts of things are easy to diagnose and um, and uh, avoid. Um, and then when you're talking about satellite servicing or working um, alongside another satellite cooperatively, uh, usually you are in very similar orbits and you are your relative, your motion relative to the other object is mostly stabilized. So you're dealing with fairly small interactions and movements to make those things happen. Um, granted that's all relative. So I, I don't want to make that seem like I'm speaking in absolutes there, but trying to at least simplify it a little bit. Okay. So it sounds, well, sounds like there's a lot up there, a lot unexpected up there. And some, it's just incredible to start thinking about in our daily lives. You know, we, we look at how hard it is to, to go with self-driving vehicles. It's, pretty much still not there tech, you know, from a technical or technology standpoint and, and what you're describing the speeds and the environments is just phenomenal actually to, to listen and understand a little bit more of. So thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's good. And, and the fortunate thing is we don't have pedestrians in space yet. So probably fewer obstacles we have to worry about than on earth, but still uh, a lot of, a lot of things that are on the, uh, no pedestrians and no birds. Yes. <laughs> um, Astro access. Yes. Uh, how does space accessibility spur innovation? So 
Love to hear about that too. Yeah. So full transparency, I have a physical disability. I use a wheelchair. I was born with my disability and I've always been a space nerd and, and wanted to go to space. And uh, I've applied for NASA to be a NASA astronaut twice, knowing full well I was going to get denied. You know, selfishly, I want to go to space. But luckily, there's a lot of other people that do as well, um, especially with disabilities. And what Astro Access is working on is making spaceflight accessible to everyone so that when you get the opportunity to go, the physical barriers or similar barriers aren't in the way stopping you from going. Uh, financially might be an issue, but that's, we're not right. touching, we're not touching that part. But, you know, when you're able to go, you don't have to worry about, can I access it physically? If you're blind, how do you navigate? If you're deaf, how do you communicate and receive information that is vital to you? Mm -hmm. And so Astro Access is working on testing and proving those things. We do uh, um, suborbital, sorry, not suborbital, parabolic flights um, on the Zero-G airplane, nicknamed the Vomit Comet. It does parabolas like this. And we have brief stints of um, weightlessness where we can test things. So for instance, um, I've flown two flights with them. And the second one, um, my primary experiment was entering and exiting analogous spaceflight seats. Because a lot of the concerns of spaceflight companies is, okay, if you have a disability, a physical disability, or if you're blind, will you be able to get in and out of the seats in time so that it is safe for that trip? And so, you know, my focus on that flight was buying down that risk. And so me, uh, another person with a physical disability and two um, visually impaired persons all went through this experiment in microgravity and all successfully were able to enter and exit the seats. And we now have the data to show that. And so that's you know one example of dozens of things we've been testing in order to buy down that risk and come up with solutions to make sure that everyone is just as able to go to space and be just as useful in space. Uh, in some instances, we're finding people with disabilities are better able to operate in microgravity. So people who are double leg amputees, for instance, can mood maneuver in microgravity extremely well because in space, your legs are kind of useless and mostly get in the way. So if they're not there, you're able to maneuver a lot better. So um, those are interesting things we're finding and testing. You know, I, I could dive into a myriad of other things we're working on, but you know, there's a lot of moving parts there for sure. That, that's a, so one, I, I want to understand the adjacency a little bit more. Because when I think of space, and, and yes, I obviously I see people who are there for longer periods of time and they're maneuvering outside of a spacecraft, but I think of it as mostly brain generated, <laughs> like how bright you are, how, how well you think under pressure, that type of thing, which to me makes a, a physical disability less of an issue. Um, and, and I might be completely wrong with that, but I just, I don't know, I just equate space and space exploration with incredible thinkers. What is the maneuverability? What What is moving seat to seat adjacent? Why is that relevant? Is that in case of uh, an issue or is I, I don't quite follow? Yeah, um, I'll kind of dive into two things there and let me know if I forget anything. But um, historically, the space uh, industry has operated in the, um, the right stuff mentality of, okay. of you know, NASA during the Apollo program and the programs before mm -hmm. it everyone there were fighter pilots, right? And, you know, there were intense missions, they were figuring things out. 
um, they were at the cutting edge and, you know, everybody had to be peak physical form to, you know, conquer these new worlds and new extremes. Um, we're not there anymore, right? Like we have an orbiting um, space station that is primarily used for research. You know, we're developing new and exciting technologies every day in space. And the need for you to be like, you know, a decorated fighter pilot just to be an astronaut is just not, you know, it, it's a resume. It's not the right. only resume. Okay. And I think that, you know, entities are coming around to see that. For instance, European Space Agency just announced their para-astronaut program and their first selected para-astronaut, which is, you know, an astronaut missing. Uh, he has a, a single leg amputation. So they're already looking into the future as far as that's concerned. And other agencies, I, I'm sure, will follow. As far as the entering and exiting the seat, so if you go on a uh, suborbital space flight with a company like Blue Origin or Virgin Galactic, where mm -hmm. you go up, uh, you get about six to eight minutes of weightlessness, and then you come down. When you hit weightlessness, you're usually allowed to unbuckle and float around the cabin, look out the windows and all of that, experience you know, all that space has to offer. Um, but then when you get to the end of that free floating period, you need to secure yourself in the seats before okay. the gravity comes back, because um, it could be bad if you're re-entering and you're not strapped in and all that stuff. It. And it, it's a liability or a perceived liability. And so the thought, you know, which to the normal person would be probably a normal thought is, oh, that person with a disability, can they even get back in the seat? You know, what's the right. risk of that? Or the blind person, will they be, be, even be able to find their seat to get back in it? Mm -hmm. And so a simple question like that provides a large amount of doubt. And so being able to empirically show with data, with video footage, here's the seats that look just like yours. Here's people with these various disabilities able to enter and exit the seats in short amount of time in microgravity right? It's a very simple thing to test, a very simple question to answer, but one that carries a ton of weight with it. And so that's why that, that specific experiment was uh, super important to um, moving this project forward. As you describe that, I can't help but thinking that if that can be resolved in, in an, an extreme circumstance like space, I, I'm hoping somebody's taking those learnings and <laughs> bringing them back to earth, if you will. I mean, it just, it, it, wow. It just seems like if you can resolve it there, then boy, you can apply it day to day and, and help millions of people um, with your learnings. Yeah. I, I mean, just in general, the stuff we develop for space, isn't just for space, right? It's for earth, the water reclamation systems and the uh, environmental processing systems on the international space station can be used anywhere. The um, efforts we're working to grow um, veg vegetation, you know, plants, fruits, whatever, in space, in harsh environments, can be used in harsh environments on Earth. Okay. Um, so I, I think it's a bit of a, um, I don't say misnomer, but a, a bit of a kind of falsity to think that the stuff we're, we're developing for space is purely for that. And um, I will say the reason why we're, we're focusing so much on spaceflight specifically is because we're at the very beginning of human spaceflight. And mm -hmm. if we talk about humanity being around for tens or hundreds of thousands of years, whatever, um, we've only been traveling to space for the last like 70. Um, right. And so we're at the very cusp of the beginning. So we have the advantage of being able to design things from the beginning. We're not fighting against 
um, hundreds of years of physical infrastructure and buildings built with staircases and all of this stuff. Um, and we're not having to retrofit, which is a much harder task than designing from the beginning. So we're seizing this opportunity where we can bake in all of these universal designs from the get-go and not have to retrofit things. And I think that is, is something that draws us to this. And the things we're, we're figuring out for spaceflight are certainly applicable for Earth as well. And so um, the thought processes we're using and the experimental tactics we're using um, can be utilized for a ton of different things terrestrially. And, you know, we are investigating ways that we can use the research we're doing to better things on Earth specifically as well. Well, Eric, thanks for your time. Thanks for sharing it, um, these stories. And as, as this episode of Say Hi comes to conclusion, just what's what's ahead what's next up for scout what's your what are your immediate sort of goals yeah so scout is working to be the the number one provider of in space space domain awareness data and you know we're doing that by um getting these products out there we've, we've already developed customer relationships with the government we already have a lot of interest from commercial customers and, and we're working to grow um, in addition, we're hiring, so you know, check out our website. And uh, we have a lot of exciting things we'll be announcing around the corner. So you know, stay tuned. We, we have a lot of things coming together, and it's a really exciting time to be not just a part of Scout, but you know, the space industry writ large. And um, to the normal consumer of this podcast who might not want to work or you know, be in the space industry or whatever, pay more attention to space. It, it's more important to you than you probably realize. And um, a lot more is happening in the space industry than just SpaceX launches. And, uh, you know, just know that launch makes up about 5% of the space industry. So there's a lot of things going on um, once you look under the hood there that I think um, a lot of people should explore. Um, there's a lot of exciting things happening, a lot of opportunities for jobs and, you know, um, new companies and, and everything in between. You know, it's a, it's a really dynamic time. Um, to be in the space industry and, and everyone should be as excited about it as I am, hopefully. Eric, thank you so much for your time, for your passion and for sharing today. Yeah, appreciate it. Thank you for having me. If you enjoy this episode and you want to support our show, leave us a review and join our mailing list by visiting www.spider.works. That's S-P-Y-D-E-R.works and subscribe to our channel. Leave us a comment with who we should interview next. Thank you for listening and see you all next Friday.